This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kristen Turner. My guest today is Katie Rios, author of This is America, Race, Gender, and Politics in America's Musical Landscape, published in 2021 by Lexington Books. Looking at an eclectic mix of different artists and cultural products from Laurie Anderson to Hamilton, Rios examines what she sees as a shared language of cultural and political critique. These artists take on problems of race and gender that have deep roots in American history, often by championing current social movements that have swept the nation, such as Me Too and Black Lives Matter. While a musicologist by training, Rios is concerned with more than the sonic signifiers of political dissent and resistance. She examines the significance of dance, visual art, and of the visual elements in music videos and special performances. Thank you for joining me today, Katie, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Kristen, and for that very generous introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to talk to you about this really fascinating book. And I'd like to start the interview just asking you how you came to this uh, particular topic. I just heard uh, a wonderful podcast interview with one of my friends, uh, Shannon Golden Perschbacher, who wrote, uh, talking about her own book, Queer Country, and she put perfectly into words the experience that led me to start working on this book. And she said something along the lines of, when a song is swirling around in my head, I feel like it's calling to me to do research and to look into it and to pay attention. And that is exactly what happened when This Is America was released for me, because I heard the song. I heard the song actually before I saw the video. And I had friends, I had students, I speak to this in the introduction, but just people who know that I uh, love and appreciate Childish Gambino's work. I'm a fan of the show Atlanta as well. <laughs> Live near Atlanta. I love hip hop, uh, particularly Atlanta hip hop and trap styles. So I had a lot of people reaching out to me asking okay, have you, you've heard the song, but have you seen the video? You need to see the video. And so I thought here I have not only in my own head, this song that's calling to me, but literally people in my life who are reaching out to me, calling to me to, to look into the song and to talk about it. 
And so that was something that was really powerful in terms of the signifiers that I was noticing in the video and how much I wanted to read about it. And uh, that was that was a big motivator for me to, to start my work. Well, perhaps that's a great place to start then. Um... Uh, is talking about This Is America, which is, uh, I think, is one of only a couple um, works of art that you come back to in every single chapter. It seems like it's a real touchstone, touchstone for you. So why was that so powerful for you as kind of a central um, work in the, in the um, book? Part of the video's disturbing appeal is its juxtaposition of shocking violence amidst what is perceived to be jubilance. Uh, the video opens in a way that makes it seem as though it might be a happy song. And it's not until he turns his face to the audience, again, this concept of gaze or who is watching whom that is this thread throughout the book, that you start to see that there are these distortions, uh, that he appears to be in physical discomfort. And then, of course, about 45 seconds in, the shocking violence, the first act of shocking violence occurs. And there were so many parallels to, in some cases, events that have actually happened. Uh, the shooting at, at the church in Charleston, um, the violence that's captured that depicts uh, the experiences for many Americans um, that I saw as touchstones for the other works that I was talking about. And in effect, even though he's turning his gaze to us in the video, we're, we're watching, we are watching him, but it is as though it's this very surreal experience of the audience being the ones, the, the audience being the, the group being watched. Like the action is called onto us about what possible next steps we might take, given this horrific, um, again, juxtaposition of, of joy amidst violence. And, and the Jim, all of the Jim Crow imagery from the way that he's, you know, like this caricature to the way he's distorting his, his facial expressions to the way he's holding his body his stance is almost exactly like those 19th century depictions of Jim Crow. And as I know, I'm, I'm veering off of the question a little bit, but uh, I think the Zip Coon character as well, the 19th century Zip Coon with the more fashionable, um, stylish, uh, chic version, still a caricature, but even in the way that he's dressed. And so I heard loud and clear uh, questions for us to consider in terms of what next steps we might take. And so that was such a grounding point for me in looking at all of the other examples where I saw similar depictions of America in a state of chaos. So that brings us to, I think, 
what I saw as one of the organizing frameworks or sort of um, maybe analytical terms that you use throughout this idea of encoded gestures in music. Um, and would you say that you thought found in uh, This Is America kind of a work that's using so many of these gestures? Or, I mean, maybe I should ask a, a more basic question. What do you mean by encoded gestures in music? Like, what what does that framework do for you? Absolutely. Yes. So one of the things I'm really interested in, in my own research, in my writing, in my teaching, is to try to make the work understandable from as wide of a viewpoint as possible, to make it accessible. This isn't necessary. This is not a strict academic audience um, that I'm appealing to with this book. I think that there are so many valuable, maybe non-traditional, non-score-based kinds of analyses that we can use. And so in some of these encoded gestures, I was so struck. For example, I've, I've talked about the Jim Crow imagery, the, the depictions that have been much written about in the video for This is America, to, to the concept of who is watching whom, that, that issue of gaze. And even when a performer on a video might turn his or her or their gaze to the camera and it's us, we feel like we're, we're being watched. I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. To the way people are moving their bodies, it might be lighting, it might be the way that people aren't moving their bodies, it, that stillness can have such a tremendous impact in a performance. Um, and those, again, kinds of modes of analysis for me were really compelling and worthy of discussion and research. So one of the, the maybe encoded gestures that you're talking about is this depiction of violence. Um, and I was really interested in what you had to say about um, one of the critiques that is often leveled against not just um, This is America, but other other um, works that uh, expose the victimization of Black people and, and all, sort of people in all sorts of minoritized communities. So they're sort of the violence enacted against their bodies, the victim is, their victimization. And you get um, sort of an enduring complaint about um, what some people call trauma porn or Black trauma porn, that it's just, um, and that it's this depiction of violence that doesn't really do any good and that is um, too oriented toward the white gaze, towards showing white people all the terrible things that are happening that people in those communities are well aware of. And I'd love to, to have you talk a little bit about what your response is to that, because many of the works that you um, talk about are definitely could be open or have been opened to that. You know, people have made that critique of it, or they could be even, even if that is not something that a particular commentator has talked about. Sure, absolutely. Thank you for that question. And I know this is a podcast, so people can't see our videos as I'm vigorously nodding in appreciation while you ask that question. Uh, I think uh, Tiffany Foster had a, a blog post of Black Girl in Maine um, speaking exactly to this point and talking about the concept of, of this video as trauma porn and that uh, 
that basically white people had become obsessed with breaking down every little movement and uh, what's happening in the video. And my entire book is, as we've been discussing, based on that premise. And so this is definitely something that I that made me negotiate imperfectly my own whiteness. At the same time, I think that there's value in that discomfort. And George Yancey has written very thoughtfully about this, about you know what happens when white people talk about race. And it's something that I felt was important to address precisely because it's uncomfortable. Childish Gambino is not trying to make a, obviously he's not trying to make us feel comfortable in this video. And I think that the stasis that is present throughout the video, that we haven't moved past the violence that's being depicted. We, we see the reenactment of events that have happened that have caused inexplicable grief that even though he does not overtly call us to action, I, I felt compelled to, to act. And I suppose writing this book is just one step. It's a response to that. You know, people, I guess, can write about something upsetting all day, and that doesn't necessarily solve the problem, but I wanted to start speaking about it. Um. Another figure that runs through this book, so This Is America, <clears throat> that video and that performance and your ideas about it come up a lot as you show how that video sort of is encapsulating things that maybe other artists are doing in a particular song. Only, you know, mm -hmm. just some of those images come up or just some of those ideas and you're, you know, sort of, but that it... Um, Childish Gambino manages to stuff a lot into that that yeah, short song yeah. and video. Um, but another figure that comes up, and I think in almost every chapter, is Colin Kaepernick in one way mm -hmm. or another. So why do you think he is um, someone that so many Black creators um, refer to in their work? Hmm. Well, talk about an encoded gesture of resistance and <laughs> his choice to kneel um a silent gesture he's he's not moving i'm thinking of the absence of i mean the, the so you move to kneel that involves body movement but then there was stillness and such such power in that statement and there were so the people who opposed it of course said Oh, and, and for that matter, Beyonce's 2016 formation performance at the Super Bowl that are that I talk about that said the football field is not the ideal place for a, a political platform that has no place there. And I I think I keep returning to it because it's actually the perfect place for such a platform because you have so many people who are seeing it. And who are receiving that? I don't want to call his act a performance. It's a it's an encoded act of resistance. Um, but to to see it and to receive it, and the people who support it now, all of a sudden, you have millions more people who are aware of what happened because of the platform. And so I think that is another important thread, and why he his name does recur throughout the book. 
and it just shows the power too of of the medium that we're not just talking about something that happened and people heard about it at a live event there are i don't know the the number the exact number of people who saw it while it was aired on tv but the the effect that it's had since has definitely been recurring and I think that is reflected in my book as well. Um, you do have a, you know, we've, we've so far I've asked you about the two figures that come throughout the book, but each chapter mm-hmm. has um, sort of discrete case studies, perhaps, or examples. And they come like from case study. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and it comes from a wide variety of places, you know, Lori Anderson, who's more, I, I sort of think of her as more on the kind of high art conceptual art stand. And then you've got, and then, then you've got Hamilton and you've got Beyonce and Rhiannon Giddens. And, you know, this is a wide variety of different artists. Um, uh, so a lot of other hip hop figures. Eminem is another that comes to mind. How did you choose your examples? Mm-hmm. I I wanted to add, if I could just tag on to the last question that you had about the recurring themes that we talked about. I it strikes me that Lori Anderson is also a recurring figure, even if I don't mention her by name. I try to if I'm if I'm citing her, but those questions about. Um, about what is pain, what is suffering, how do you tell a story, what questions do we ask, these kinds of existential questions. I felt like that was also a thread throughout the book. For the the tracks that I'm, or the performances that I'm considering, to go back to the first question that you had, these are very much songs that have or performances that have been in my ear, uh, very much on my mind, very meaningful to me. It's a a playlist. I developed a Spotify playlist for it to look for examples, particularly examples that have videos. Almost all of the examples that I discuss have some kind of video that you can also watch in addition to listening to the tracks. But that was certainly the the playlist can be longer. I'm going to continue to add to it. You know, maybe there will be another, maybe I can do an updated edition of this book with the same title in, in 10 years. And it would, you know, be a very, well, I hope it would be a very different kind of mix of songs. Maybe we can see that there's been some tremendous kind of progress and movement with all of the reckoning that's been happening in the past few years. But these are works that I think reflect those kinds of opening questions that Laurie Anderson asks that I that I list in chapter one. It's not exhaustive by any means. Um, I don't make that claim. Well, let's talk about Laurie Anderson a little bit more because you're right. I should have added that as as those questions do recur. I did um, not mean to correct you. I no, just had no, thought no. it. <laughs> I didn't take it as a correction. It's just, you know, yeah. um, I, uh, I I think that's a really good point. And and actually, um, I think of all of your examples, that's probably the one that. Um, the largest number of readers or listeners to this podcast might, they might not be as familiar with Lori Anderson or, or if they know her name, perhaps not familiar with, um, the, uh, art, uh, um, 
installation that she organized called One Year yeah. of Resistance. And I was yeah. wondering if you could tell us a little bit about One Year of Resistance and Lori Anderson and sort of how you, you are um, analyzing her in, in this book. Sure. Yeah. So she was one of three co-organizers for this project, One Year of Resistance, which was in response to the one-year anniversary of the inauguration of our former president (laughs) and as a kind of protest because after the election, people had protested by shutting down. And so they thought it would be more of a statement to make a call to artists to submit it could be poetry it in in some cases the installations that happened were dance all all of these gestures that i've been talking about and so keen to study and this particular project that um is that one of the works is featured on the cover of the book that vivid neon sign uh i'll i guess i'll describe it again cover on the podcast but um, it's an outline of the contiguous states and neon yellow. And then there's a neon letters in the center in red. It looks urgent. The, the colors look urgent, very striking. It says in, uh, closed for quotation renovation, end quote. And then at the northeast, southwest sides of these contiguous states, there are exit signs. And so this was one of the contributions uh, from Tuba Alipur, really stunning work in response to Laurie Anderson's call for for works in, in this concept of one year of resistance. They had a bibliography of uh, James James Baldwin was listed on there. They had all sorts of inspiring works that might compel, might impel artists to to react and to turn something in. And so, I saw the online gallery for um, for one year of resistance, which is just incredible. I think I have a, a URL in in my footnotes for it for people interested to see it, but it there were dozens of, of just incredible works. And so in the first part of that chapter, Anderson is perhaps obliquely involved. She did not create the artwork, of course, but she was part of the force of the women, powerful, strong women organizing this exhibit and the gallery. And the, I didn't even know about it after I had already decided that I wanted to talk about Laurie Anderson to kind of lead with her and those existential questions that I mentioned before. And I was just blown away that this even existed. It was like something had just fallen into my lap as I'm doing this, the exciting part about research. Right. And so when, when I saw this gallery and just so inspired by all of the incredible artwork, I thought, well, I guess I could just, try to track down the artist and see if anyone wants to talk to me. I, I don't know. I've worked you on this. And so a couple of them very generously responded. And I've had so many meaningful conversations, phone calls, emails, exchanges with these wonderful artists. And so that was 
that was exciting. And, and I'm glad that, and I think I special thanks to Tuba Alapur and to Joel Trenton for letting me use their artwork. And because it's, all, you know, it's always fun to have pictures in a book too, right? So yeah, there's some, there's some wonderful imagery and same to Laurie Anderson in, in the images that are in chapter one. Um, so I, I found, um, one of the things that sort of also runs through the book is just how much what we're talking about for most of these artists, our response to something that happened while Donald Trump was president or because of his election, obviously one year of resistance is an obvious one, but then there was just this kind of explosion of activism among artists in those years. And not that artists haven't been plenty activists before and after, but, but perhaps there was um, an urgency about what they were doing. Or, or, and, and I think also sort of some more mainstream uptake of some things that perhaps would not have gotten the kind of publicity if if there if if Donald Trump wasn't president and there wasn't this sort of um, um, I don't know wellspring of of resistance to to his, to him as president, but also more importantly, I think to the forces that uh, were supporting him and um, bringing all of that to light. So, and this book, please to me, is also born of that kind of same um, impulse to action. Um, if I can <laughs> be so bold, <laughs> uh, you know that it seems like <laughs> that you know that it's- that seems part of that. It felt like an emergency. I wanted the cover to represent a state of emergency. And so I was so grateful to Tuba when she gave me permission to use the image. And I, you know, Anderson speaks to that. Frankly, I'm reluctant to use this word, but very talented and very able way that Trump had to in communicating with his supporters in this kind of direct language that spoke to a very specific population and that rhetorically he was very he he's well we have the anti-vaxxers now condemning trump so i was gonna say he's still still good at that at, at speaking to his base with this kind of gut instinct unfortunately that's also what is so terrifying is that that power that he's Held. And I think what made so many people, including me, feel called to to speak to that, to to react to it. And then, of course, you know, as I'm writing, the the pandemic begins unfolding, and it just felt like every day there was a new emergency to write about. And I thought at some point I've got to limit what I'm covering because it. Otherwise, I'm going to be writing this book for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that that there's definitely something so relevant about these works occurring mostly within the years of uh, dur- during the Trump years and how people are responding to that. That Hamilton, of all things, could have become representative of what party you might be affiliated with after Pence was in the audience and they made a call to to him and Trump was really offended and started making fun of Hamilton and so it it's just it I would say it's uncanny but it's 
really unsurprising given the way that he spoke to his face and how good he was at that. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, you know, I wonder if part of that was, um, I think people like us who study this sort of thing know that all art is political in one way or another. Like it's, you really can't, you know, you can't get out of it, even if the text itself seems unpolitical, the subtext always is, or the context always is. But that wasn't as obvious, I think, to people who don't study this kind of thing for a living. And, um, you know, the idea of, of, art being so politicized is was really um i i think one that people had not noticed or had forgotten about in sort of the year in, in sort of the the sort of several decades where people were able, were were making a big distinction between politics and other parts of their lives which does not happen anymore and i think that trump did not that it wasn't not that we didn't already live in a politically polarized world but i think the trump presidency uh really drove home to everyone that anything you know that everything is politicized and and that and hamilton i think is a good example of that and i'd love to talk a little bit more about hamilton now because that is the work that ended Yes, well, who couldn't, right? Um, it's the work that, you know, it's the last thing that you consider. And one of the things about Hamilton prior to this, uh, uh, con- it's not even a confrontation with Trump, this, the, I mean, with, with Pence, this, this conversation or, you know, call to Pence was that it really had um, had adherence from all sides of the political um uh, spectrum that everyone found something in Hamilton that they found that worked with their political ideology. And that ends when Trump attacks it. Um, and, um, uh, so as you point, I mean, it's a good example of that sort of polarizing way, you know, that it's not just politicized, but it becomes polarized within that politicized, mm-hmm. um, kind of atmosphere, an- an- anecdotally, Absolutely. And anecdotally, too, I I had to crack up because I was reading one of the interviews um, with Laurie Anderson, who starts the book, uh, who coincidentally, uh, uh, I guess, hated Hamilton. She couldn't even (laughs) sit through it. I thought, oh, oh, no, here I've got the anchors here on my book. But um, yeah, yeah, I was really struck, too, as you said, with how it spoke to a number of people before it became politicized and it has it has politics built into it that's its framework and the way that Miranda is subverting the 
images that we might expect to see for the founding fathers, which is something that he is still negotiating and, and questioning. I'm I'm blanking for a second now on this scholar who was Ishmael Reed, um, who was very, very critical of Miranda's choice to to use minority characters who are representing character our founding fathers who were not necessarily minorities and in some cases owned slaves and um so he uh, he he was very critical of that and and i think miranda continues to to respond to some of the critiques that have happened um not surprisingly in a very thoughtful engaging way I think these are, again, just going back to this idea of works acquiring additional meaning upon repeated listening or repeated viewings, that this is something that's possible for the creators, too. Well, you do um, address this critique of the um, race-conscious casting that he uses in Hamilton, and I found your analysis quite interesting. Can you share a little bit more about your thinking about the effect of the of those casting decisions? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So by placing these. Um, perceived minority characters you can't always of course tell by looking at somebody what their the, what their race is but we can see on the stage that we have characters of color representing founding fathers who we know were not minorities and in some cases owned slaves and in my analysis i i go through a number of steps to argue that he's actually subverting the power model by placing those characters here again, as an encoded gesture, it's very visible. We can see it on the stage that we see these minority characters as the founding fathers, as the leaders. Well, what happens when we retell the story through that lens, when we flip the script so that those who have traditionally been perceived to be not in power are now the ones calling the shots? Nope pun intended for my shot, the great number, but we're seeing that play out on stage. And then on top of that, you have in an American musical, the majority of the numbers are in a hip hop style or they're rapped, or you're hearing some kind of reference to the framework of hip hop, which is orally, again, kind of subverting maybe our expectations for what would happen in a more traditional, for lack of a better word, uh, more traditional musical or what our expectations might be for for the Broadway musical. And I think it's fascinating. There are things I've I've watched the the uh, Disney Plus version a few times since it came out last summer. And there are things because I know we Kristen, you and I were lucky enough to be able to see the musical with the original Broadway cast before the tickets got crazy expensive, just having heard about it or read about it. Um, but there are things that I find so striking that I didn't, I, that I notice and appreciate with it, with additional viewings. Um, like David Diggs has this swagger when he walks. Talk about a body movement, uh, a, a swagger regardless of whether he's playing Marquis de Lafayette or Jefferson, that or, or the style of the number, like what I miss is not really a hip hop number, but he still has that kind of 
hip hop movement that we would associate, you know, that swag that's there throughout the entire musical, even when he's just walking across the stage. It's, it's so powerful. Now, one of the things that strikes me about what you were saying in the book and just now about this casting is that um, at the time period, these founding fathers were resisting what they saw as oppression and and really what is the language for resisting oppression in America today it is not classical music it's not country music you know it's not it's not um uh you know other forms of music that are associated with white people so much it is hip hop it is soul it is gospel you know it is these black musical styles and and who else better to tell us about what it is like to resist oppression than than people who continue to suffer oppression, right? Um, so, um, but I do think Miranda suffers um, over and over in his work from being the only one. And he's sort of expected to answer all questions. So he does not, there's not a lot of talk of slavery in Hamilton, which is a repeated point of critique um, but tell me the musical that talks about slavery, <laughs> you know, already, right? You know, he, with, um, the movie version of Into the Heights, there was a lot of critique about, and he even apologized for not having Afro Latino actors. But, you know, if there were 15 musicals that had a mostly Latinx cast, he wouldn't have to represent every single you know, Latinx person um, in his cast. And I, I think that he really does suffer from uh, the problem that so many uh, creators from minoritized communities suffer from, which is they're the only ones in the space and they're expected to uh, create artwork that's just more sprawling than you know, I mean, how, how do you create artwork that satisfies every problem of representation in your particular field? And I think I think this that those sorts of critiques often come out. I think of the frustration of of not having another work to say. Well, Hamilton doesn't do it, but this one does. But there is no other right. this one. Right, yeah. and I think this is something that you you and I even sat down and talked about when we were looking at this a few years ago at an academic conference. Is would would people have been talking as much if say we had a in Hamilton a cast of all white women or something representing the founding fathers would it have been the force would people have have reacted in the way that this that they have to the potentially controversial aspects of it there's i don't think there's any one right way of casting i would never claim that but the way that he's doing it again to kind of subvert the expectations of the audience not only historically, but also aesthetically with the style, the predominant style of hip hop. I think as, as some people have recently ar argued, it's becoming the predominant popular style hip hop as pop. Um, I was just in a session for the a Smithsonian Roundtable, uh, historically speaking, how corporate branding impacted um, hip hop and the, the panelists spoke to that. And, and you just mentioned it a few minutes ago that hip hop is now not only what we associate with a uh, language of resistance, some 
I know Trisha Rose, I think, has argued that maybe we can start to move away from just this kind of one fits one size fits all as, as resistance. But for now, if we're, we're looking at as a language of resistance, predominantly so right now, it's also such a tremendously popular genre. <laughs> uh, so there's there's that to negotiate. And I, you said too for, you know, hip hop being the most obvious, um, maybe less so. I think that there are some artists who have, and you gave country as an, an example. I think that there are some artists who are making an effort to say, hey, this is actually country music is actually a genre that is also resistance. It's representing a minority voice. I mean, Rhiannon Giddens um, has gone through tireless efforts to in educating her audiences about the Black origins of country music. And I think I um, mentioned Shana Golden-Pirschbacher at the beginning of, of the work, of the, that she has really looked at how the identities of country musicians have m- maybe begun to find more of a voice where whereas before they were in the fringes and, and looking at trans artists and and in the communities that she's engaged with. So I think that there is a space for other genres to be answering this urgent call that we're finding um, to resist and to express whether they're encoded or, in, or overt this kind of shared resistance across genres. Well, I think you definitely make a good point that's probably every genre of music can be a site of resistance. And, um, you know, country music is a great example or has a history within it that has been maybe um, uh, forgotten or erased as with Rhiannon Giddens, who who so much of her work is about finding um, and... Oh, I know. Well, I definitely want to talk to her in just a minute about that in just a minute. But, you know, that so much of her work is about reminding people of the black roots of music that we now think of as, as, uh, you know, more white genres, bluegrass and country and string trio, you know, string band music, all of that. So I think that's all really important. I I do, but I also take the point that you were saying that um, there are still these dominant ideas of what, um, what sorts of music are more overtly sites of resistance than others. And, you know, if Miranda writes Hamilton 30 years from now, maybe the, you know, it's a different, he uses different kinds of, uh, of musical styles, you know, because our, you know, does hip hop start to lose that sort of history of resistance as it becomes more and more straight pop music, maybe country becomes a site of resistance in a way that it really doesn't seem to be in the larger conversation right now. So, you know, those those things do change over time. What a point one of the panelists made in that Smithsonian roundtable I just mentioned, um, they said that in the realm of, in the genre of hip hop, for example, which is uh, nearing its 50th birthday, we're, we're, we're coming, we're getting closer to it, that you look at a group like Tribe called Quest, and then you look at a group like Migos, who at the Grammys, they're going to be in maybe in the same category for hip hop, but their music sounds completely different, but it's still all within this genre. And so I think that's, real, that's so fascinating to think about what could happen to the, how 
Hamilton, an American musical, how might it reflect what the predominant or prevailing or perceived genre of resistance for the majority of his songs? What would that look like in, in 30 years? I think that's a great question. Well, let's definitely talk about Rhiannon Giddens, who I would say okay. is my favorite uh Person, my personal favorite singer right now has been for years. She grew up in Greensboro, where I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, too. So I, I totally feel like this weird kinship with her because of that. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, um, you specifically talk about two of her songs, which are inspired by her research into the experience of enslaved people and enslaved women, um, particularly. I think perhaps more than any other artist I can think of, she is able to. Um, convert what is a real scholar's interest in history to into music that um, that's grounded in that without being weirdly academic or or off-putting in it, you know in in some way. Um, I, I just it's such a talent to be able to do that. I can't think of anyone else who who can do it the way she does. So I, I'd love for you just just talk a little bit about how you see Rhiannon Giddens um, participating in these in, in these topics that you're talking about in the book. Wonderful. Yes, I love that. For example, in Songs of Our Na- Native Daughters, this wonderful album that I highly recommend. That there are, in addition to liner notes there's a bibliography of suggested readings, which is yeah, not common to see in, in liner notes. And it's specifically a bibliography toward um, bettering the understanding for her listeners to also become readers and to learn about the racism that's baked into our American soil and to kind of think about how we might retell this story in a more equitable way. And it's it was so powerful to me that she, in addition to incorporating these encoded gestures that are so meaningful for my analysis, that as you said, she's out there doing the work. She's representing not only as an insanely talented, wonderful musician, but also as a researcher who's fully able to engage her audience. It's it's incredible. And so I'm intrigued and in awe of that ability for her. The other thing that is so striking to me um, in these works that I've discussed and, and in her other works is this kind of intersectionality that's there. You know, she she's a Black woman and as I talk about in chapter two, Black women and girls so much are at that intersection of racism, of classism, of sexism. And so it's something that she can speak directly to. And I want I want to hear everything that she has to say. I, I want to hear everything that she has to sing about it. And that, that goes back to earlier in our discussion with the reaction to the the critiques of white people being fascinated by the This Is America video as kind of trauma porn. And I responded that part of this book, part of this reflection in thinking about individual experiences like the one Gibbons is educating her audiences about 
is to sit with my own whiteness and to think about my own racism that I, you know, it's not, it's not about this, the work of saying I'm not a racist. It's about saying I'm anti-racist. And yet I have benefited from a society that has privileged me. And so I want to sit back and, and foreground other voices such as hers. And I think she does it so powerfully and so beautifully. Well, I actually, I think her two songs, which I've never seen critiqued as trauma porn, could actually come under that oh, critique. Oh, I, I, I was talking about This Is America. For, sorry oh, if that was No, confusing. no, no. But, yeah. but what I, no, I understood that. No, what I was going to say, though, right. is I think that she, I think people could say that about it because when she sings about the heartbreak and the she's so empathetic about the enslaved people that she's singing about. And she really at the purchaser's option, which is one of the songs that you talk about, she takes on the persona of an enslaved woman. And I think that, I think those songs are a great, a great sort of, not that every example of what people have been calling black trauma porn is, is comes under this, but I think for her songs and for this is America and others that are critiqued in that way, I think that, the other side of that that is shown in those songs is the deep empathy and love that these um, works show for the subjects of the violence that they're talking about, right? That, that um, even this is America. I think, I think that if we, if I could imagine childish Gambino, he's, he is showing the violence that these people that you know that his community and and people like him that look like him are constantly subjected to but there's also this sort of deep empathy and caring for those same people right and i really see that in Rhiannon giddens's work so much that she she does make me also as a white woman empathize and understand the um, the experience of enslavement in a way that nothing else helps me understand, but it's coming from a place of real love for those people that she is embodying and that she is singing about and maybe even for. And, and I, and I think that that is, um, it, that's not trauma porn to me. Right. And it's not just for, not just for white people and for the that's education right. of white people, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I really like that parallel be- between the two videos and uh, interpreting, receiving the, the the more positive aspects of the of the effect of This Is America, of the video for it. And it, it occurs to me that they, the videos start and we see someone seated, <laughs> uh, solitary in the beginning. There's a I'm I'm processing it right now, but I, I think that there's something very intimate about that setting that also invite that invites the listener, the audience to engage, to react in a positive way. I agree with you that I think it's much more obvious and at the purchaser at the purchaser's option because you have these wonderful animated graphics in kind of an arc above her, almost in a sense of flight or of triumph uh, that there's this kind of there's this kind of happiness that will be there regardless this strength and perseverance that will be there that is displayed so beautifully 
Well, as we wrap up, um, I want to ask you one final question, actually uh, sort of bouncing off of what you were talking about with this video for At the Purchaser's Option. Um, for a book written by a musicologist and, you know, at its center a lot about music, you spend an enormous amount of time um, in analyzing and talking ab about visual elements, whether that's you know, what the dance looks like or the elements of the uh, what a video looks like, um, you know, what a performance looks like. You talk about the Beyonce performance of Formation, for instance, and the costumes used in that. Um, and I, I'm wondering, do you think there's something um, that musicians feel is so important about visual elements that, that sometimes it can really even overwhelm the music or... or change the uh, meaning of the music in a sort of fundamental way. I'm particularly thinking of formation, which if you hear it without any visual elements at all, really you wouldn't, I don't think anyone would associate Black Lives Matter, the Black Panther Party, Katrina, you know, Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath. Um, none of those things come to mind in that song, yet the visual elements that she's used in performance and in video of that have completely you know, completely change oh, the way 100%. Of, of, you know, of the message that comes across with that song. So why do you think those other elements are so powerful? And why would musicians choose those elements that maybe get their point across more pointedly than their, than their music does? Yes, I think they're so powerful, because they add to the performance, they can add to the meeting, they can heighten, they can, in some cases, change, as, as you said, if you just heard I, I happened to be, I happened to hear Formation before I saw the, the video for it. Well, that's not true. No, I did see the Super Bowl performance. I didn't see her music video, which was calculated re released the day before her performance at the Super Bowl. And that is more overtly, you can see more state, there are protesters, there's people doing graffiti, there is a line of police officers in front of which a black a young black boy is dancing and and the protesters are holding up hands up don't shoot signs and the police officers are the ones who end up raising their hands and it's these kinds of things that i think are so powerfully adding to the music that we're hearing and that i think we had this discussion before we started recording so i'm glad that you asked this question um, but i'm so fascinated by looking at these really non-traditional modes of analysis where I'm not just saying, I'm not saying at all, all right, we're sitting down with a score and have we successfully navigated from tonic to dominant or in what interesting or unusual ways might that have happened uh, formally? How many sections is this, this song? Or, you know, if there's a musical detail that I thought was interesting in the song, I will refer to it. But by and large, this book, is I, I'm trying to aim for uh, as wide an audience as I can. I want it to be accessible. I think that there's so many different ways of receiving music that can be enhanced by the visual markers, by the kinds of uh, dancing, what we're seeing, the lighting, uh, distortion, things that we might hear that maybe it's a fuzzy baseline or maybe there's something that that is adding to maybe just the lyrics or the the music itself to kind of go beyond that and particularly for popular music that's the 
the work of the sociologist Nick Crossley really grounded my discussion because he makes such a powerful point that these kinds of gestures, these visual markers, these sonic cues that we might have, that they can actually raise consciousness. And I'm fascinated by that concept. And that is what made that mode of analysis so much, so powerful for me, where the, you know, what we were talking about before, before we hit record, where I had considered as one of uh, my methodologies to talk about performativity, um, you know, and thinking about how something can change based on the way it is performed. And ling- this has linguistic origins. John Austin, I think in the 1940s, did did work on this. And then of Judith Butler has done a lot um, in the, the music, in the field of music. But that term just started to garner so much criticism, especially um, in the social justice movements that were came to the fore um, in in the midst of the pandemic that's disproportionately affecting the lives of minorities. And so I steered away from that term. And I think that the the concept of, you know, these gestures raising consciousness, that there's multivalence, there's multiple meanings. I think that actually works better for the range of types of music that I discuss in the book. I mean, I'm biased, but that's I landed there because it it seemed to fit better the more I the more I did research and wrote. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. And my name is Kristen Turner. This is New Books in Music, and I've been talking to Katie Rios about her book, This is America, Race, Gender, and Politics in America's Musical Landscape, published in 2021 by Lexington Books. Thank you so much for joining me, Katie. This was really fun. I loved it. Thank you so much, Kristen, for having me. You are so welcome.